It is not funny. It is a downer. Okay. There's a lot of like very bad things. You feel bad emotions. Oh, no. You don't enjoy it, uh-uh. but you can't look away. Hi, and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known legacies and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable and beloved people. So what you doing? I am listening to a podcast. Presently. Yeah, well, technically, no. Technically, presently, I am recording a podcast. That is true. But if you could do both at the same time, you could disprove all of the science that says people can't multitask. I could. I, yeah, I've, I was listening to our back episodes at the same time uh, as we were making new ones. Yeah? That would make me nauseous, I'm sure. But even if not presently, in the recent past, I've been listening to this podcast. And for people who uh, are not familiar with our early episodes, one of my favorites... One of the ones that I was eager to do early on was Mother Teresa. Yes, one of our heroes. Yes. Uh, I felt like there were a lot of misconceptions about what Mother Teresa was like. I had heard some things, did some research. And for me personally, felt like it was an overdue re-examination of her legacy. I mean, she was one of our very first heavy hitters. And there are like 10 big heavy hitters in the world. When you say heavy hitters, like these are the people that show up on the uh, Times like list of most admired people of the last century. Right. Other heavy hitters in our repertoire or portfolio of heroes would be folks like Gandhi, right? Mm-hmm. Winston Churchill. Steve Jobs, I feel like is in there now. Steve Jobs, absolutely. The ones that basically the ones that came to mind for the first twenty episodes. <laughs> yes. Yes. But really, Mother Teresa was at the top. Yes. So um, that was back over a year ago. Episode number four. But recently, the podcast I've been listening to, I would like to just take a moment to highly recommend mm. our listeners go check it out. Okay. Uh, it's not some little indie thing. I'm not like trying to do a favor to anybody. This is iHeartRadio's uh, The Turning. Oh, okay. The Sisters Who Left, recorded by Erica Lance, who's a producer over there. It is phenomenal. It is an inside look speaking to former nuns who joined the, the Sisters of Charity, or the Missionaries of Charity with Mother Teresa Whoa. and left. They would have current nuns on there, too. They would try to interview them, but none of them would talk to anybody. Oh, yeah. Why would they? There's, yes. no, there's no reason to talk. You've, you keep those secrets. Yes. But anyway, uh, I listened to one episode, and I was just, it was incredible, and I couldn't stop listening. Listen to it the whole way through. Highly recommend it to anybody who is interested in more on the topic. I love that. It's probably better, like more investigative, like real journalism compared oh. to episode four. Oh yeah, yeah, of yeah. Major yeah. heroes. Yes, there's a former sister who's like written a book, and it's like major like parts of her life story and research. It's like it's like somebody who's done their homework. Sure. So it's smarter, but is it as funny? It is. It is not funny at all. <laughs> okay. It is. It is fucking wild, <laughs> is what it is. It is. It, it is not funny. It is a downer. Okay. There's a lot of like. Very bad things. You feel bad emotions. Oh, no. You don't enjoy it, Uh -uh. but you can't look away. So if you're looking for something... It's a very different podcast. Yeah. (laughs) 
if, if you've had enough of our uh, jovial bullshit and you'd right. like some depressing, shocking stuff, go give it a listen. It turns out real journalism, when you dig in to the reality of the way the world works, it's pretty depressing. It, it, it usually is. That's why we like to spice it up with some yellow journalism, a little <laughs> editorializing. <laughs> some real gonzo hours in here. That's right. A little birdie told me that this week it's another heavy hitter. Name recognition that is almost as high as Mother Teresa. Pretty well known, although known in name. Sure. Most people have no idea what the reality is like. Of the two of us, you were the one most inclined to take someone that the vast majority of the world has idolized and be like, absolutely not. Let's stop that right there. Here is the real deal. Yeah. I know that's like the the theme of our podcast. <laughs> of the two of us, I'm the one who's really bought into this podcast. Yeah, uh, and it was my idea. See, like I have no problem bringing down genocidal maniacs or pedophiles. You go after like legitimate uh, heroes in the in the eyes of the world. Like I'm here for the nuns and the feminist icons yes. and the scientists <laughs> and the innovators. Yeah, let's let's get to know them. <laughs> right, and I will stick to destroying the artists because we cannot separate the art from the artists. Sure. Well, then, with no further ado, mm-hmm. this week's hero is Amelia Earhart. What do you know about Amelia Earhart? I know that she knew way ahead of her time how to rock a very good pant. <laughs> okay. Very good pants. This will come back. It's actually uh, <laughs> on on theme with our uh, oh yeah with our episode. Okay. Um, she had uh, a very sort of sporty haircut. Okay. So those are all of the least important things. But I also know that she was, or has been considered at least, the first female pilot to attempt to fly around the world solo. Is that correct? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I also know that she disappeared and has never been found. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, that's right. All those things and and more. Can't wait. Let's dive in. Amelia Earhart was born in Atchison, Kansas on July 24th, 1897. Actually, I really feel very bad that I did not mention that. As someone who was born and raised in Kansas, Mm -hmm. that I did not mention (laughs) that she was born in Kansas. Oh, shame. Ah. Shame on me. We, there's so few of us. Yeah, there's it's like not that many. Bob Dole, and then like <laughs> Eisenhower and her, and you, and, and now me. you, and me, and look at me now. Uh, July oh wait, 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 and Paul Rudd. <laughs> and Paul Rudd. Don't forget Paul Rudd. Uh, given that she was born on July 24th, that means it is time for Elliot's Geology Corner. July's a ruby. We've already done ruby. I realize now the difficulty. With mm-hmm. my segment, mm-hmm. is that there's only 12 of them, mm-hmm. unlike the 365 different days for a horoscope. <laughs> so I'm I'm gonna have to make this uh, Elliot's 
I don't know, astronomy corner. I gotta I gotta think of a new science, but it's a ruby. We don't. Yeah, the gemstones have bested you. They have. It was. I didn't think this bit through. To be fair, though, last week's hero was the very first duplicate Audrey's Astrology Corner we had had. <laughs> That's true. That is true. So Happens you, to the best of us. You go through enough heroes, you get there. So as a child, Amelia spent long hours playing with her sister, Pidge. <laughs> Stop. Yes. That's uh, not her real name. Her real name is Pidge. No, it's not. Pidge Earhart. No, it's not. <laughs> yes. She ended up going by Muriel later, but it was not that her name was Muriel and her nickname was Pidge. Her name was Pidge. If Muriel is the upgrade of her <laughs> name. Oh, no. Pidge? Pidge. Like, just only missing the O-N on the end of Pigeon. <laughs> yes, that is accurate. Just go by Pigeon. That's so much cooler. It is better. It is better. So Clyde's dead, but that's our cat now screaming in the background. Is that the cat? <laughs> that's sugar milk. <laughs> <laughs> that is a loud cat. Do you want me to go take care of her? She's downstairs. But yeah, like a full a full flight downstairs. Clearly, sugar milk has taken up Clyde's mantle. <laughs> yes. I'll inevitably, one of them will rise up. Uh, where were we? Uh, pigeon? Pidge. That's right, Pidge. <laughs> so so Earhart as a child. Wait, we have finally gotten Amelia Earhart in this episode. Thank goodness. Okay. So as a child, Amelia was playing with her sister Pidge, and they would, in Kansas, climb trees, hunt rats with a rifle. Oh, what? Uh, they you would, don't need a rifle to kill rats. But it works. Jesus. It's effective. <laughs> um, they would belly slam their sleds downhill, Yikes. like just running starts. Mm-hmm. The fun way. Um, so although they, they really loved being outdoors and it was not uncommon, right, to be rough and tumble. Some of her biographers characterize the young Earhart as a tomboy, mm-hmm. breaking stereotypical gender roles. The two sisters kept worms, moths, and a tree toad. As pets? Where were their parents? I mean, they're probably like, go catch some toads. <laughs> Get out of my hair. It's in the middle of Kansas in the early 1900s. Yes. Um, at one point in 1904, when she was seven, Amelia cobbled together this homemade ramp based on a roller coaster that she had seen in St. Louis. Oh, no. <laughs> fixed the ramp on top of the family's tool shed. Oh! So it went down <laughs> and then up. <gasps> Um, it was her first flight. Sure, it was sure. Pretty dramatic. Sure. How many bones did she break? <laughs> Apparently, she didn't break bones, oh. but when she landed and the box broke, she mm. was like, "Pitch, it was just like flying." Oh. And she really loved it. Who knows if that's really true? I okay. Don't know. Okay. It's um, a romantic story, either way. Exactly. She was young when her grandmother died, and left a large fortune to the family, but not to her parents. Her dad was an alcoholic, and the, his mother was afraid that he would waste the money on drink. Of course. So left it explicitly to Amelia and her sister. At the age of like 10, she's got some money to work with. Won't actually be hers for a little bit, but she's got some money theoretically. So through high school, she is keeping scrapbooks with newspaper clippings about all of these successful women that are taking on jobs in predominantly historically male fields. So things like film directing and law and advertising and engineering. She's really 
invested in this idea that gender should not be a barrier to what you want to do in life. Sure. It's like right around World War One. So there's the coinciding of, you know, sort of like peak industrial revolution, starting to starting to see factory work, plus a whole bunch of men get shipped over to Europe. Yes. So now there there are actual opportunities and uh, necessity for women to be in the workforce. Yes. In America, it gets much bigger during World War II where there's like the- Totally, totally. You know, yeah. uh, we can do it posters, but- mm-hmm. And then the baby boom, all that. But sure. World War I, you, there were similar effects. S- exactly, exactly. So when she's 23, uh, Amelia is in Long Beach and her and her dad visit an airfield- and they are selling rides for $10 in an airplane. So equivalent of about $150 today. Show up, 10 bucks, get in this plane, some stranger will take you there. 10 minutes up in the air, back down. Whoa, a dollar a minute. That's steep. <laughs> it is pricey, yes. Uh, but they spring for it because, you know, she's going to be loaded yeah. with grandma gone. Amelia's quoted as saying, after they come down, by the time I had got two or 300 feet off the ground, I knew I had to fly. She is committed. She goes to tap into the savings that grandmother sent, and they realize that due to some unfortunate investments, like, it's mostly gone. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, they had invested in some mines or something that didn't really work out. Getting close to the Depression at this point? No, no. We're, we're way out ahead of that. Oh, okay. 29 is the crash. This is 20. Oh, okay. So even before the financial crisis, yeah, yeah, yeah. they yeah. lost this money. So uh, instead, she just starts working odd jobs to like save up money for flying lessons. So she like is a photographer, a truck diver, stenographer, works at a telephone company, like whatever she can do, scrounges up a thousand bucks. Whoa! And has her first lesson, and from her first lesson, she knows she loves it. Can we do that math real fast? If ten dollars is equivalent to one hundred and fifty dollars for a flight. It's like $10,000 that it's costing her. That doesn't seem fully unrealistic, but it is a lot of money for flying lessons. Yes. Yes. As she shows up, she's very self-conscious about being a woman. Now, she did does find a woman to take lessons from. Whoa. Anita Snook is a, a pioneer female aviator who's willing to give her the lessons. Okay. But when- In Kansas? No. So they're in Long Beach now. Oh, that's right. But I wasn't when, paying attention to my bag. <laughs> yes. So, but when she shows up, she notices that she's going to look out of place. Mm-hmm. So, this is the point where she gets conscious about her image and she decides if she's going to go take these lessons, she wants to look like an aviator. So, she gets a leather jacket mm. and uh, it's brand new, but she sleeps in it for three days. So, it looks a little bit more crumpled up. Okay. Um, to be less like she just bought it off the rack. <laughs> sure. And then. To complete the look, she cuts her hair short with scissors. You know what? It actually kind of looks like she did that herself. Yes. it kind of And it kind of worked for her. I mean, like, yeah. that was living her best life. So she shows up and starts taking lessons and is just absolutely loving it. It's like she shows up like that Steve Buscemi meme that's like, hello, fellow aviators. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> like, with... What's it like? Hello, fellow youth. Or whatever. Kids, yes. Hello, fellow kids. Yeah. Where she's like chopped off her own hair and she's slept like in slept her in her jacket and she shows up. She's like, yes, I too am an aviator. Yes. She's not great, but she is having the time of her life. 
I mean, I really wouldn't expect anyone to be great at first. Yeah, she's not a great student, though, is the thing. She's not, like, oh. particularly well, uh, uh, not particularly talented. So but... that's where I want my pilots to, <laughs> to differentiate from her. A lot of practice. Hey, hey, you know, hard work, determination can pay off. Absolutely. Um, but she writes, she, she starts writing a newspaper column that basically is espousing the um, benefits of having women learn to fly and become aviators. She, it's like advocating like, oh, more, you know, advocating for commercial aviation, av- advocating for people to train as pilots. Like, this is the wave of the future, right? Like, these things will become common. This mm-hmm. is the new technology. It's like people like trying to convince you to use the internet in the 90s, right? Like, <laughs> sure. get on this. Um, and Women, so she- you too can write an email. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. After a few years of this, she reads one day, that Charles Lindbergh has flown solo across the Atlantic Ocean. This is a huge deal. Yeah. Right? Breaking barriers. Mm-hmm. This clown's going to be an episode soon. Oh, he's got to be. He's got to be. But he broke the barrier, whatever, flew across the Atlantic, came back, and fanfare yes. galore. Huge fanfare, right? Huge celebrity. Uh, immediate. Overnight celebrity. He was a nobody before that. Exactly, right? Like, he just went mm-hmm. into in, into this, like, international phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Back in the States, there's this woman named Amy Guest, and she sees this, and she thinks, maybe maybe I could be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. I'm a nobody, too. I could be a celebrity. Then she starts like doing some research, and she's like, oh, I could die. <laughs> this is not a good idea. It's like a 30-plus hour trip at it, that point. It took Lindbergh 33 hours. Right. You can't eat or drink. You can eat and drink. You can have, yeah. You can't sleep, really. You can't sleep. Oh, you absolutely can't sleep. Um, But she's like, okay, maybe I could do this, maybe I couldn't. She's like, looks into it, she's like, no, this is too perilous. Okay, not going to happen, not going to happen. She has money, and so she's like, okay, I'll sponsor this. I'll be an investor in it. I just got to find the right person. Mm. She approaches some other people who are into marketing and publicity, and they're like, okay, we got to, like, scrounge up somebody who's stupid enough to like actually do this they go and they talk to this local army cap or air force captain like who do you know and he's like i think i saw a girl write this newspaper column (laughs) she's got Um, cool pants and a really weird haircut yeah and so (gasps) literally out of the blue in 1928 a year after Lindbergh, Earhart gets a phone call from captain hilton Rayleigh, who's like would you like to fly across the atlantic ocean sorry the exact quote is would you like to fly the atlantic Oh, and she's like, um, what? <laughs> uh, and he's like, yeah, you fly across like Lindbergh did, and she's like, I cannot do that. <laughs> I have no idea how to do that. No, absolutely not. And it's the correct response. Yes, but at this point, this machine's already already going. There's investors, and the investors, in addition to having like this Air Force guy who's like, got you know, got a lead on a. Lady pilot. Um, <laughs> they have a publicity guy. So there is Mr. G.P. Putnam. Ooh. And he is like the Uber agent of the day. He specializes in celebrity true life stories. When Lindbergh went from being a nobody to being this international star, it is not by accident. It was because he was signed to this publishing company mm. that brokered him 
his book deals mm, and his mm-hmm. speaking tours and everything mm-hmm. and was basically his agent and was getting a cut of all this action. Of course. So when they saw there was this opportunity, they did this for Lindbergh. Our lady, Amy Guest, gets the same publicity agent who has gotten, you know, Lindbergh his like, you know, $60,000 deal to like fly across the Atlantic originally. Sure. And they're looking for this woman to be the female equivalent. Right. And Putnam hears about it and he's like, Sounds great. Sounds perfect. I can make it work. Even before he meets her, he's like, okay, I know what I'm going to do. He goes and he lines all this stuff up. He talks to her for like one conversation and he's like, perfect. He goes and gets a whole lecture tour and book contracts and like uh, newspaper columns, product endorsement deals. Like he lines all this stuff up and he's like, it doesn't matter who you are. And she's like, I cannot fly this plane across (laughs) the Atlantic Ocean. We will die. And they're like, okay, uh, what are we going to do? So they're like, okay, are you willing to do this for $10,000? And she's like, no, I can't fly. (laughs) (laughs) And so they go, okay, are you willing to sit on the plane for $10,000? And she's like, okay. And so they sign her up. Amelia Earhart's flight across the Atlantic Ocean that turns her into an international superstar. She does not touch the controls once. What? She's a passenger on a flight. She's a passenger on a flight that has two other people on it, one mechanic and one pilot. Oh. And afterwards, when they quoted her, she did all the publicity and everything. But in like the later a few years afterwards, she was like, her quote, exact quote was, I was just baggage, like a sack of potatoes. <laughs> I really appreciate the honesty, though. Yeah. Right. So she was, I mean, technically the first woman on a transatlantic flight across or i mean i guess like across the atlantic right yes yes so like and the, the technicality of it is true it is it is and putnam is just like loving it he's making bank people love her when he met her he was like okay she she's a midwesterner kind of like charles Lindbergh was yeah and so they kind of but, have this vague like like could be cousins type resemblance okay so he calls her lady Lindbergh. okay and people just eat it up like nobody asks questions she's very scrappy she's very like scrawny is the word i would use scrawny i wouldn't use scrawny i would say more like um i wouldn't say like corn fed in the traditional sense where you're mm-hmm. like a football player okay yeah but where you're like corn fed in the like She's blanky, but salt of the earth. She has yeah. a great smile, though, which she works does. for the cameras. She's a hard worker. Yes. Short hair, mm-hmm. wearing leather, looks like it's been lived in. <laughs> sure. People eat it up. Putnam has entirely, with the help of investors, manufactured this woman into a celebrity, and immediately, like, people go nuts. Putnam is is smitten with her. After this happens, personally, he's like, Oh, no. I want to marry you. Oh, I don't feel like she's the marrying a... Man type. Gentle fellow sort of person. She says no. <gasps> okay. He asks again. Uh-oh. She says no again. Sure. He asks again a oh. third time. Uh-oh. She says no again. Of course. He asks a fourth time, though. No way. She says no. <laughs> <laughs> he does ask a fifth time, though. Still and she no. says no. <laughs> he asks a sixth time. He asks her six times to marry like him. formal proposals? Formal proposals. No. And after getting... Five solid no's and him not taking the hint. Mm -hmm. She writes him a letter. And she says in this letter, quote, You must know again my reluctance to marry, my feeling that I shatter thereby any chances in work, which means the most to me. Mm. I feel the move just now as foolish as anything I can do. 
I know there may be compensations, but I have no heart to look ahead. He's like, okay, but please, for real, will you marry me? <laughs> and she's like, okay, fine. No. Yes. She says yes. On the seventh try. Yes. Oh, maybe it was between five and six, six and seven. It's over six. Okay. At least. Okay. Um, and so, so let's just pause here for a second. Okay. We can make any number of jokes, but let's just pretend you're on the other side of this. You're asking me to marry you six times. Yes. You know that my reluctance has been at least as strong as six proposals. <laughs> at least. You still ask, what sort of marriage do you think you're getting into? He's got to think it's good for business and personal stuff. He's got to think there's like some payoff because he's not he's not getting a lot of like vibes from her. It's not it's not an affectionate marriage. No. Okay. Not all marriages have to be affectionate. No. In fact, after she says yes, her yes comes in the form of another letter. Okay. And she's like, you can have as many lovers as you want. Just she, leave me alone. No, she she serves him a letter saying, quote, some things which should be written before we're married. I want you to understand that I shall not hold you to any medieval code of faithfulness, <laughs> nor shall I consider myself bound to you similarly. <laughs> we can both have as many wives as we want. Exactly. <laughs> um, also, she was very clear that she would not quit flying. She said... Please let us not interfere with each other's work or play. Okay. And she was like, all this, like, till death to us part? No, that's bullshit. No. She said, quote, I must exact a cruel promise, and that is you will let me go in a year if we find no happiness together. Oh, wow. I like it. I like it. Do you think, so hear me out. Here's mm-hmm. the long play as a business person. Okay. You know that this person that you're marrying, you have at least once successfully convinced to get on a death-defying plane ride it was a lot less death defined because she wasn't at the controls sure sure and you're thinking to yourself all right we're gonna ramp up the risk with that increased risk will be a bigger payout and if i'm the sole beneficiary of that payout it behooves mm. me to lock this down it's and so she says i can have a girlfriend i mean she does say this right um she doesn't specify gender but she's very clearly saying i I have no faithfulness to you. Yes. And your theory about, like, we're going to ramp up the danger here. Yeah. It's not totally out of the question. Right. Because after this happens, she's becoming this celebrity. Lady Lindy in the press. Everybody loves her. Mm. But she feels kind of like a fraud. She's been working on her pilot skills. And she's like, I want to actually try to make this flight now. She sets up this attempt where she actually wants to fly across the Atlantic solo by herself like Lindbergh did. Okay. So they are married on February 7th, 1931. Then she begins setting up this solo flight. Now, when Lindbergh flew, he flew 3,300 miles from New York to Paris. And it was a big celebration. He, he diverted a little bit to make sure he flew over London as he was coming in. Right. If you just go, is it, doesn't she end up going New York to London, which is slightly closer? Not quite. Okay. She... Sets up the flight. She's going to go from New York to Paris like him. Mm. And she's like, that's a really long flight. <laughs> so like, so before they leave, she moves the starting place to Newfoundland, Newfoundland, Canada. Okay. It's out there. It's a whole new time zone. Yeah. It's like way out east. It's like yeah. uh, it's a, several hundred miles closer to where she's going to end yeah. up. It's a full one or two time zones ahead of New York. Yes. 
So she goes and like instead of starting in New York, she's like, I'm gonna start on the furthest, furthest tip of like the <laughs> East Coast that I can find. Literally the furthest <gasps> closest. Okay, so she's gonna chop like several hundred miles off the flight, but she's still gonna do it from there to Paris. She misses Paris. Oh no. So she's flying and she gets off course and she doesn't she's not quite flying in the right direction, but she does see land. And so she lands when she sees land, and she ends up in Ireland. No, that's very not Paris. <laughs> she lands up in a field in the middle of Ireland, and this like she Whoops. Shepherd is like, "Did she have you been flying far?" And she's like, "It flew from America." <laughs> is her first response. Um, and the guy is shocked, obviously. Uh, so she misses out on the big celebration party that they had planned for her, <laughs> which is like you know celebrating her landing. Uh, it ends up being 1,400 miles shorter than Lindbergh's flight. Like, if you combine chopping off so much from both ends of it, right. it is just over half of what his flight was across was the Atlantic ask, as well. Was it, is it like 1,000 miles from Ireland to Paris? Yeah. It's, it's, it seems like it's like 800 or 900 miles. It, so it's, 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 I think, total, yeah, it was 3,300 for Lindbergh, and then her flight was 1,900. Okay, yeah. So anyway, but she does it. She's the first woman she made at it. this point to now actually fly solo across the Atlantic as a pilot and Girl not just boss. a passenger. This was played up. It just like took whatever stratospheric celebrity she had and just like rocketed to the next level, right? The most frustrating part about this to most historians is that she was eating it up. Mm-hmm. But it was very obvious to anybody who was actually in aviation that there were way better female f- pilots at the time no. that should have been getting this recognition. So she, Amelia, was loving it, right? The whole reason she ultimately agreed to this marriage was because she could keep flying, have her agent like be even more invested in her success, and help set up stuff like this. Many of those other female pilots did much more dangerous or impressive things. Many of them were killed, and none of them got nearly the same uh, press. So for example, Eleanor Smith. Who's Never that? heard of her. Never heard of her. That's the whole point, right? Eleanor soloed in 1926 at the age of 15. What? And then three months later set an altitude record of 12,000 feet. In 1927, she became the youngest licensed pilot in the entire country at the age of 18. Uh, And then she became the youngest male or female pilot to be granted an air transport license by the U.S. Department of Commerce. So she was the first commercial pilot. That same year, she set two endurance records, a refueling record, the Women's World Speed record. Uh, the last one it was in a military airplane. In 1930, she was selected uh, by the Association of American Pilots as the best woman pilot in America. Wow. So this is before Earhart's flight. Everybody's like, okay, yeah, obviously this woman is way better. <laughs> yeah. Like, she's the best pilot. And everybody like who actually is in the know is like dismissive of Earhart because... She was just a passenger on it. She does her flight, which is she does it a thousand miles shorter than Lindbergh, more than a thousand miles shorter, and messes misses the the actual country she was supposed to land in, <laughs> but she gets all the glory. So you're telling me that all it takes is very good PR, some sort of platform, and mediocre skills, and you too can go down in the history books. Yes. You don't have to be the best. You, you don't have to be firm. the smartest. You need the you need the network. Yes. By the way, Eleanor Smith. Yeah. Uh, did stunt flight fundraisers for the homeless and the needy. Charity work with her flying. Whoa. Didn't get the press. Didn't have the PR firm. Also, in addition to Eleanor Smith, there was Louise Thaden, who was self-taught, 
but a solo flyer by 1928. She also set an altitude record by flying above 20,000 feet, which was double the previous record almost. Uh, first U.S. woman with that title, won a solo endurance record, fourth woman in the U.S. to get her air transport license. She won the first woman's air derby and beat Amelia Earhart in that race in 1929. The year before uh, one of Earhart's famous flights, Thadden became the first woman to beat all the men in this highly competitive international air race. Wow. Set a new speed record and won the Harmon Trophy, which was the highest honor in aeronautics in the world. No recognition. No press. No. I mean, that's incredible. I don't want to discredit anything that she accomplished, but I want to go back to this idea that she was self-taught just briefly, because I feel like there are a number of things that I'd be willing to, <laughs> to like self-teach myself, but becoming the very best pilot in the world is not one of those. I can barely get on a commercial flight now without losing my absolute mind. So it's like 1920-something. She's like, I'm going to teach myself to fly and becomes the very best in the world. I mean, here's the thing, right? If you are a woman, there is a lack of men who are willing to teach you to fly. Well, where do you get the plane to teach yourself? It's a very good question. Maybe just borrow it. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's doubly impressive because she taught herself how to do it. Yes. There are a ton of other women who deserve this recognition a lot more than Amelia Earhart. Nancy Love, Jacqueline Cochran, Barbara London. There was Bessie Coleman, who became the first African-American pilot in 1921 when she traveled to France to take flying lessons because no one in America would give her fucking flying lessons. But ah. she, she went to France, learned, and she said basically she got past the barriers by refusing to take no for an answer. Went on to like win all kinds of other awards. Ruby Sheldon. Um, there are just... There is a laundry list of groundbreaking female aviators who not only overcome the barriers other people put in front of them, but also excel in aviation, do incredible things. And none of them are named Amelia Earhart at this point. Wow. And she was just picked, not even on her like qualifications. She was just like plucked out because she was what they perceived to be like gullible enough to take on this platform and take these risks. Yeah, she was convenient. She didn't, I mean, like, they, they picked her to sit in a passenger seat yeah. and then get the press. And she did. And she did. Wow. Until she eventually flew and landed in the wrong country. Uh, but you Strike know, one. You know what she did do, though? Mm -mm. Become a fashion designer. No way! <laughs> so with all of this fame Stop. from flying Stop. across the Atlantic to the wrong country... She's eating up this fame. She's like, what What do I have to offer the world? And this Stop woman who it. cut her own hair with scissors and slept in her leather jacket is like, you know what women need? Fashion advice from me. This is the current celebrity playbook. You can be a mediocre nobody. You get connected to the right person. Suddenly you have a platform and now you have like a partnership with, I don't know, Adidas. Yes. Yes. It wasn't Adidas, but that but, is exactly the playbook. Yeah. Although I have to say... She, even if she was, in fact, the first celebrity fashion designer, she was not a very good one, as you might be able to guess. Um, it failed to catch on with the public, maybe because even though she was kind of charming, her clothes were basically sportswear um, with, like, little airplanes embroidered onto them. <laughs> and there wasn't a big market for that? Not a big market for that, especially with women, it turned out. I would wear it. Yeah, I don't doubt that. And throw on some Doc Martens or some Tevas. I feel like it would just really, really complete the look. A carabiner, maybe? Oh, it would round you out. <laughs> yeah. So many carabiners. Flannel? Yes. I don't know. It's flannel. Maybe flannel's taking it too far. But you could really fit some keys in those pockets. 
You don't even need a bag. No. <laughs> so Snacks, many buckets. Rocks. How many rocks can you fit in those pockets? Just all the rocks you can find on any nature walk. So all of these incredible women pilots are out there aviating up a storm. No rocks in their pockets at all. Earhart's out there embroidering airplanes on his sweatpants. Probably a couple rocks in her pockets. <laughs> some, some rocks in the pockets, yes. And eating up the life of a celebrity. April 20th, 1933, Earhart and her husband, George, George Putnam, mm-hmm. invited over to dinner at the White House. President Roosevelt was away, mm. so the invitation was just to come eat dinner with Eleanor Roosevelt. Another pant-wearing, pox-and-rockets sort of lady? Yes. So, for listeners who have missed our... Two-part FDR. Our our two-part FDR series. Mm -hmm. Eleanor Roosevelt was um, essentially openly bisexual at a time when it would have been incredibly scandalous for anyone to be. But by the fact that she was and was in the White House... Yeah. Just strong-armed her way into acceptance. Yeah. I mean, she had enough power and influence and plausible deniability. Those are the three things that you need in order to get away with something that would otherwise be scandalous in the early 20th century. Exactly. Eleanor invites him to dinner. Amelia's there. Now, Eleanor actually had taken flying lessons as well. I remember this. You had said this. Yeah. Really wanted to be a pilot, but FDR said said it was too dangerous. Right. So she really loved flying. So they're sitting there over the course of dinner, and Earhart leans over to the first lady and says, hey, we could wait for the next course, or do you just want to go flying with me? Whoa. And she's like, yes, I do. <laughs> and so they leave. So wow. they go. What a pickup line. Where uh, Reagan, Washington National is right now, there used to be what they call, called Hoover Airfield. Okay. So they go out to this airfield. Putnam comes along and sits in the back, but... Eleanor and Earhart sit in the front two seats, the pilot and co-pilot seats, and they're in formal attire, but they get in. Earhart just takes the controls and is wearing her evening dress, and they go on this, like, 30-minute flight. Some might call it a joyride. A joyride, in fact. So when they get back on the ground, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt is just enthralled. Tells mm. the press, uh, it marks an epic, doesn't it, when a girl in an evening dress and slippers can pilot a plane at night. And although there is nothing official in Eleanor Roosevelt or Amelia Earhart's papers, there are contemporaneous accounts that say that this is the beginning of an affair between Earhart and Roosevelt. How could it not be? Over the next few years. You just fly in, fly out, right? discreet. Get back to dinner. Yeah. Who knows? FDR is not missing you. He's got a secretary in... Two dozen mistresses. It's true. It's true. Earhart is here, kind of living the life of a celebrity, not really a world-class aviator. Okay. Um, But decides that she wants to do something that's really going to cement her status, put her in the record books, and prove to the world that she is able to actually fly alongside the best in the world. She decides on a round-the-world flight. Barely made it to Ireland. Why would that be your next your next course? I mean, honestly, it seems like she's a little insecure about this. Sure. Rightly so. Yeah. I'm trying to think of a good metaphor here. It's like, oh, I lost the 100-meter dash, so now I'm going to enter a marathon. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I'm just going to go for it. Um, 
she might have bought into her own hype a little bit at this point. Okay. Like okay. she is a mega celebrity and has done the book tours, has done all of these things, eaten at the White House, slept with the First Lady. Like mm-hmm. she just, if I want to do it, I'm going to do it. So she starts planning this flight in 1936. Others had done round-the-world flights before, so it wouldn't be a first thing, but it would be the longest because she was going to fly closer to the equator, like around the world at the widest point. Right. All 25,000 miles. There is a male pioneering pilot from World War II named Gordon Taylor who did a lot of early route exploration when people were trying to figure out how can you fly across the Pacific Ocean without running out of gas, essentially, in your plane. What island can you land on? Yeah, and his quote on what it was like said, to reach our destination, and in fact, to reach land at all, the navigator had to be exactly right in the work that was ahead of him. When he's made his allowances for variations on the compass due to the Earth's magnetism, for deviation due to its effects through the iron in the aircraft, and for the drift of the air in which the aircraft is flying... The navigator still has to contend with the fact that the pilot may not steer the course given to him exactly. Essentially, you had to have all of these calculations perfect over 15 hours. Your target is not a giant continent like Europe. Mm -hmm. It is a tiny little island somewhere. It's New Guinea. In a string of islands. Exactly. Imperfection means that you died. Finding your aircraft if it, like, runs out of gas is like much harder than finding the right island for somebody (laughs) else, right? It's, like, much smaller, and it sinks pretty quickly. So... One of Taylor's fights, he reached the Hawaiian Islands with only five minutes of fuel left. And he was like the best in the world at the time. On another one of his flights, he never found the right island. And he survived only because that flight left him with enough fuel to return, turn around backwards, basically, and get back so he could coast down without any fuel. (sighs) Amelia Earhart was not a perfect pilot. Notoriously good at math. (laughs) One, One aircraft historian wrote, quote, even in an era when aviation upsets and catastrophes were relatively commonplace... Earhart had far too many wrecks. Oh. She crashed a lot. Um, but she decided to do this, and she was going to get a route that was as close to the equator as she could. She was going to fly several long stretches over these little islands in the Pacific. She flies from Oakland to Hawaii. Makes it. Leaves from Hawaii, crashes on takeoff. No. Uh, they, they doesn't, she doesn't land in the water. She lands on the land. So they go and they fix up the plane and uh, it takes like 10 days. But 10 days later, she leaves Hawaii again, eventually reaches New Guinea, reaches land, lands in New Guinea on June 29th. She's made it 22,000 miles already, has 7,000 miles left to go. They depart on July 2nd for the next leg. The ship that she's trying to signal and follow that will help guide her to where she's going to land is using Morse code. Unfortunately for Amelia Earhart, and the navigator she had chosen for her flight. She does not know. They don't know Morse code. Neither one of them knows the Morse code. (laughs) So they start trying to talk through just a regular radio signal on Morse code channels. So tell me a little bit more about what this ship does or what it was supposed to do. Yes. So the island they're looking for is Howland. Howland Island. Okay. It is two miles long, less than a mile wide. It's like a dot in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Oh, my gosh. This U.S. Coast Guard ship is anchored off the coast of this island because mm-hmm. they don't have, like, an air traffic control tower. No. The Coast Guard ship is essentially the radio signal that is going to guide Amelia Earhart to this tiny little dot to refuel. Mm. Unfortunately, so they're sending Morse code. Amelia and her navigator are, are speaking with their voice over the radio on a Morse code channel. And the ship is able to hear them. 
But Amelia and her navigator are never able to find the ship. Oh, no. They don't get visual confirmation. It turns out also that either through part of the crash or just not understanding the trade-offs, Amelia had chosen to leave part of their antenna behind for the radio. Oh. Which gave them a very severely limited radio range. Okay. So at some point after about 8.30 in the morning, they lose radio contact and it's never reestablished. With anybody, on any island, just in general. Yes. The Howland loses radio contact. Amelia and her navigator are never heard from again. Oh, no. I'm acting shocked like I didn't know that was what was coming, but it seems uh, a bit more preventable than it was. Yeah. This bright, burning celebrity, July 22nd, they disappear. The Roosevelts called the fucking Navy. No. They spend millions and millions of dollars, taxpayer dollars, like dozens of ships trying to find her or her plane. But as you can imagine, it's harder than finding an island, and that in and of itself is pretty damn hard. She disappeared on July 2nd, was declared lost at sea on July 19th, 1937. So despite her refusal to allow gender norms to dictate her limitations, and despite her pioneering aviator spirit for the lack of real accomplishment to back up her first foray into public life. (laughs) Sure for her indulgence in the celebrity life despite having so many more accomplished female aviators be overshadowed. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact that she took essentially the title of the most famous woman pilot, despite getting lost and crashing multiple times, including in the final flight that took her life, Amelia Earhart is not my hero. She sounds like a neat person. She did some interesting, neat things and had some neat life experiences, but it is an absolute shame that her celebrity, is the word obfuscate, obfuscated? Yeah, obfuscated, hid. Hid, obfuscated the successes of other women who were really accomplished and, you know... We could blame Amelia for that, certainly, because it wasn't like she didn't indulge in it. But also, this is just such a classic example of the way that American history, in particular, uh, fixates on a certain narrative and amplifies it. And that's the narrative, in this case, in particular, of a desirable white woman that one... PR guy was infatuated with when there were lots of other women and women of color and women from a diversity of backgrounds who their stories just haven't been told. And it sounds like she was pretty shitty at building roller coasters, too. <laughs> not, not her finest moment. <laughs> there is a, a, another very American postscript to her story. Hit me with it. So everybody thinks that she died. I mean, is that not the end of the podcast? Is that not what we just got to? She's dead? Well, a few weeks later, it turns out she's alive. Shut the fuck up. Did you not know this part? No, stop it. Okay, so (laughs) this man... No. Wilbur Rother... Mm Mm-mm. A few weeks later... Don't believe it. ...comes forward to Putnam, her husband, and says, Hey, hey, she was captured by a boat that was running arms near New Guinea... And uh, I have her. No way. 
And they're like, you're full of shit. And he's like, here's here's the scarf she was wearing. What? And he gives Putnam the scarf she was wearing. No. And he's like, I want $2,000. That's so cheap. Which in today's money is only $20,000. Yeah. And he says, give me $2,000. I'll give you back your wife. And Putnam's like, holy shit, is she alive? No. And it turns out that Wilbur Rother is a janitor. Okay. Who saw her at an air show a couple years back. Stole her scarf. While she was flying, she lost her scarf. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he picked it up. But even her death, which was the culmination of all of these publicity scams and just like Putnam's, you know, PR stunts. Sure. It is perhaps fitting that at the very end, she went out by having one more person try to steal her thunder for totally bullshit reasons. No. When he couldn't deliver. If people would like more examples of people making promises they can't really deliver on, where can they find us? They can find us on social media at Your Heroes Pod or on our website at MeetYourHeroesPodcast.com. Yep, and please like, share, rate, review, spread the word, tell your friends. And until next week, don't be a hero. Don't be a hero. Bye. Bye.